Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Depending on who you ask, the 2021 legislative session was the worst ever or one of the best in history. It was certainly the longest. This week, Speaker Scott Bedke gives us his take. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, House Speaker Scott Bedke joins me to discuss new laws on transportation funding, property taxes, and whether this year's indefinite legislative recess sets a precedent for future sessions. But first, on Tuesday, the Commission of Pardons and Parole granted Gerald Pizzuto Jr. a commutation hearing, leading to the cancellation of his scheduled June 2nd execution. The Commission will hold a public hearing in November to discuss whether they will recommend Governor Brad Little grant him clemency. Pizzuto has been on death row for 35 years after being convicted for the killings of two people in Idaho County. Idaho Reports producer Ruth Brown has more on the Idaho Reports blog, as well as an in-depth look at statutes and case law regarding capital punishment for individuals with intellectual disabilities. You'll find the link at IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports. Also Tuesday, Governor Brad Little announced his veto of Senate Bill 1150, which would have prohibited out-of-state signature gathering for Idaho ballot initiatives. Opponents had expressed concern that the legislation would unfairly hinder Idahoans who live out-of-state who are otherwise qualified voters. Though amendments added exemptions for military members and missionaries, Little said in his veto letter that the bill still unfairly discriminates against other Idahoans who may find themselves temporarily out of state. I am running to be your next governor of the state of Idaho. Yeah! On Wednesday, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan announced she is running for governor. What we have seen over the past year is unacceptable. The violations of our individual rights, our state sovereignty, and our traditional conservative principles is intolerable. I refuse to stand by and allow these abuses to go unchallenged. That would be a disservice to our state and a violation of my sworn oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of Idaho. <laughs> Governor Little hasn't officially announced his run for a second term, but told the Idaho Capital Sun this week, quote, don't be shocked at his decision. His campaign has filed with the Secretary of State's office, as has McGeehan's and Ada County Republican Party official Ed Humphreys. Only one other Idaho lieutenant has launched a primary challenge to the sitting governor. That was in 1938 when Lieutenant Governor Charles Gossett ran against Governor Barzilla Clark. Both of them ended up losing the Democratic nomination to C. Ben Ross, who then lost the general election to Republican Clarence Albert Bottleson. On Friday, Representative Priscilla Giddings announced she is running for lieutenant governor, joining former Representative Luke Malik in the race for the Republican nomination. 
Speaking of intra-party fights, this last legislative session saw plenty of tussling among Republicans who make up the supermajority in the Idaho legislature. Democrats called it the worst legislative session in Idaho's history. House Republicans said last week they disagree hailing transportation funding and income tax cuts as major accomplishments. On Thursday, I sat down with House Speaker Scott Betke to get his take. Mr. Speaker, thank you so much for joining us today. It, it sounds like you think that this session went pretty well. Well, against the unpredictable backdrop of the COVID-19, uh, yes, I do think it, I, I do think it went well. Uh, there were a lot of good things that came out of that. Uh, Idahoans should be uh, happy that we set a prudent budget uh, and that we've, we funded the schools, we did all of the things that, that we normally do, and some of the, you know, that we usually take for granted. But against that backdrop, we, we the state of Idaho's economy is doing great. We have a surplus uh, that was unpredicted and, and, lar and frankly unprecedented. And so with that surplus, we were able to give ongoing say, uh, property tax, well, excuse me, ongoing income tax relief, including a, a refund check based on the taxes that you paid last year to all, all Idahoans, even if you owed no taxes, there'll be a minimum that will be sent back. And that will end up being the uh, all totaled the largest tax uh, cut that Idaho has ever done with regard to dollars at the same time uh, we committed part of this good economic growth that we have in the state to infrastructure. You know, we're the fastest growing state in the union, uh, certainly in the top three, depending on who you ask. But we and we have the associated growing pains in our infrastructure. And so uh, we were able to use part of that growth uh, in the sales tax receipts to uh, dedicate towards uh, transportation inf infrastructure, not just for the state uh, portion, but also going out to cities and counties and highway districts. And so that when we look back 10 years from now about what we did in 2021 that really counted, I think it's gonna be this commitment to our, our infrastructure. Uh, we also redrew the lines a little bit on how the state is going to react to future emergencies or future disasters. That was code that had not been updated literally for over 50 years, and it was stress tested, and we found ways to improve that. Ultimately, the governor signed all of those bills, uh, and we were able to uh, draw a, a bright line in between what natural disasters, fires, floods, et cetera, and uh, the other types of disasters, acts of war, terrorism, and uh, and the like. And so uh, that was long overdue. We did that. I think maybe more importantly in some areas of the state is we increased the homeowner's exemption by 25%. And that's that's real property tax relief to anyone that owns a home and, uh, and, and uh, changed some of this, this code around uh, how property taxes are calculated, et cetera, so that we can better manage the growth and that we can have growth, paying for growth, rather than going back and, uh, you know, if, if you and I are neighbors and if I improve my property, that should not result in an increase in your property taxes. And so we we uh, tried to bend the curve a little bit on the, on the, the growth there. Uh, that that's an ongoing, that's a work in progress. I mean, we, we still have the interim committee to, to take that up 
and we will. And I suspect that we haven't heard the last about property taxes in Idaho. You know, and I want to touch on all of those topics, but since you uh, ended with property tax, let's start there. We heard protests from a lot of officials, especially in the Treasure Valley, who were not only unhappy with the bill itself, but also the process. You know, there were a, a number of iterations of this, but the one that finally passed and was signed by the governor came together, or at least came out publicly in the last three days of, of the legislature when you were there. Um, there were people who felt that they didn't have enough time to give input on something that they felt would really affect their city or, or county budgets. Um, so when it comes to such a large, complex bill with such big implications, uh, why rush it through at the last minute? Well, it may have looked rushed through to the outsiders, but that was a an issue that we took up from the very beginning weeks of the session. Uh, there were there were conversations going back and forth with all of the stakeholders for the entire uh, 120 days frankly and and uh, you know so if you like the bill uh, you know you you think it was a good process if you don't like the bill then you use the common refrain of oh this was forced through at the last minute uh, we hear that uh, from time to time but it, you don't it doesn't pass with the margins that it that it did in the house and in the senate and be signed by the governor if that was just dropped in everybody's lap in the last three days those were those were it's a complicated bill it's a complex subject and uh so it took many many hours of conversations to to get the compromise that was uh, represented in that house bill 389. now uh it it also caps the amount of, of budgets you know that the, the budgets can grow and uh and so in some places, uh, some of the cities in the Treasure Valley will have to reevaluate the way they do it. But uh, by and large, this was a, a pretty good bill. And again, all homeowners will ex can expect a, a slight reduction in their property taxes based on this increase of the homeowner's exemption. And so, uh, you know, but again, I commit that it's, this will be an ongoing process. We'll have conversations through the interim, and, and I'm and I'm positive next year on this very on this very subject. One thing we all need to keep in mind is that is that the state, while we set the parameters and set the the draw the laws within which everybody works, the the budgets are set by the local units of government. So all of the problems that anybody uh has or complains about their taxes going up has been okay with a set of commissioners or a set of city council members uh the the local uh, units of government do all property taxes go there and run their uh, services and so got to keep that in mind yes the state has some oversight in all of that but uh, where the rubber meets the road is at the at the local level are you concerned that Caldwell has paused new development while they study the implications of this bill and other cities are considering the same? Well, I think that that gives us, you know, it, it uh, yeah, maybe some concern, but let's not underestimate the ability to create some political theater here and to uh, and to exaggerate the, the, the effects of the bill. Uh, Caldwell and uh, Western, well, and, and uh, Western Ada County and, and Canyon County are growing very quickly and in a, in a, at a level that is making your 
property taxes if you're a homeowner go up and you have nothing to do with all the growth and all the new construction. So uh, I think many, I think taxpayers are happy uh, that they're not going to uh, bear the burden of a lot of this new construction, nor should they. And uh, we have a budget-driven system that's, that uh, sometimes cranks, cranks out these outcomes that no one likes. And that's, that's where we are. Again, we also changed the, uh, you know, the circuit breaker process. That's, that's basically where uh, the state pays uh, people that qualifies uh, property taxes. And so made that a little uh, easier, made that, you know, lowered some of the hurdles, made it easier to qualify for, but also removed the ability to game that system as well. No, I, I wanted to ask you about transportation, speaking of growth. Um, you know, past legislatures have long resisted using general fund dollars for transportation needs, saying that it would compete against things like education. Um, this was brought up in debate by the, the co-chair of the Joint Budget Committee, Senator Steve Baer, said that he was concerned that during the next recession, transportation would be competing with things like corrections and K through 12 and all the other programs that rely on the general fund. Are, are you concerned about that? No, I'm not. Uh, we're using such a small portion of the, of the general fund and sales tax specifically. Our, our economy is growing quickly. The, re, the receipts into the sales uh, tax uh, part of the budget are, are growing at a, a very sustainable rate. And to carve out part of that, uh, and dedicate that towards transportation, I think is fitting and proper. Uh, we've always relied on fuel taxes. And uh, as the fleet, as the Idaho fleet becomes more efficient, the, the growth that we're all experiencing is not reflected in the, in the receipts uh, from the fuel tax. And we need to, uh, we needed to index uh, the transportation funding to a growing fund and something that more closely re reflects uh, the, what the economy is doing. Fuel tax doesn't necessarily do that. And uh, as many of us learned during the pandemic, uh, we paid sales taxes on our Amazon <laughs> deliveries and part of that sales tax going back in to support the infrastructure that delivered those packages not out of the question and, and proper. Uh, Idaho is one of the few states that didn't rely on the general fund and now we do to a small degree and I don't think that that will, uh, again, when we look back 10 years from now, we're gonna think that this was a pretty good idea and we're able to do some good stuff. You know, as, as the state's population keeps growing, our transportation needs, as you said, are, are going to grow with it. Is this going to be enough or is there a next big step when it comes to transportation funding that you're looking at? Well, uh, we don't know, I guess. And that's why we're gonna have a, a, good, a perfectly good legislative session next year to, and the year after that to address those questions. And uh, we'll, we'll just have to see. Uh, growth have, brings growing pains, and we've got to and, to and to describe what those are today, five years out or whatever. We we have a maybe a pretty good idea, but we don't we can't predict those uh, completely, and so we got to be ready to react to what comes down the road. What we do know is that this investment 
uh, that we made this session will pay dividends and that uh, not only in the state system but also in the local system all of the artillery arterial roads that you use in the treasure valley to get from one place to the other that's usually not the the uh the freeway it's all of the other stuff all the other roads that are managed by in this case achd and they will be the direct uh, recipient of of this monies as well yeah I, I wanted to ask you about the voter initiatives um you know i know i know that house republicans feel strongly that that rural idaho should have a bigger say in what voter initiatives end up in the ballot, but the way that this bill was crafted, a single legislative district has veto power over something that potentially, you know, 34 other districts want. Are you concerned about the potential that this might backfire, that there's a, there's a district or there's, there's a issue that every other district wants on the ballot, but, you know, Boise's North End says, you know, we're gonna veto this. We're gonna dismiss what rural Idaho has to say. Well, keep in mind that the threshold per district is only 6% of the of the people that voted in the last elections. That's not uh, overly high. It was interesting, yesterday I was in a in a meeting in, in Twin Falls, in rural Twin Falls, out in Buell, and this issue came up, and uh, those those people in that meeting were were completely complimentary in, in what the legislature did in that uh, you know, getting the necessary signatures in each legislative district is not a foreign concept to them, and they don't want to be left out of the process. Uh, it's, you know, when the citizens act as the legislative branch, then that should involve all of them. You know, and, and the citizens acting as the legislative branch is a right that's protected in the Idaho Constitution. Are you confident that there are now two lawsuits over this initiative bill? Are you confident that this will hold up in court? You know that's always uh, you know that's always questionable. Who, who knows? Um, we're I, and whatever the court says is what is where we'll is where we'll live in the future. And so uh, I don't want to predict what they will do or not do. But I I think that number one, uh, my position is to keep the initiative process and the referendum process viable and. Uh, but it also needs to, to represent the various constituencies clear across the state. When uh, all of our growth is, or much of our growth is concentrated in a few areas. And I think that creates some concerns in the other areas that they don't want to be left out. I, I wanted to ask you about the American Rescue Plan Act funds. Um, you know, that, that's a big reason, of course, that the legislature didn't adjourn for the session, but instead recessed with the ability to come back. Is there anything in the pipeline right now that you think will prompt you to come back this, this summer or fall? Well, number one, we, we do not want to be a full-time legislature. And uh, so as special sessions, uh, regardless of the source, we're, are going to have to be special. You know, they're going to have to be special circumstances that will uh, that will trigger us coming in. Having said that, uh, last year our state received literally billions of dollars, and we've uh, we've accounted for them and and directed them in the areas where we could uh, to to make sure that that regardless of the of the federal spending that the state invested those dollars as, as wisely as we possibly could. And all of the ARPA monies are accounted for. Now, should there be additional billions of dollars coming down the road, then I think that that might uh, 
across the threshold of where it's proper that we that we come in and, and oversee the the appropriation process. Let's never forget who we work for, and that is uh, you, the Idaho citizens, and you pay federal taxes and you pay state taxes. And if the and if the federal pocket of your taxes is coming in in, in the in the amounts that we've described, I don't think it's out of the question for the legislative branch who is tasked constitutionally with the responsibility of appropriating the money to leave a crack in the door for the unforeseen and that's what we've done. Does this indefinite recess set a precedent for future sessions? Uh, it, it, it may, it may not. I, I can't predict the future but again uh, any any disruption that it creates in the state agencies and with that, that bureaucracy is uh, I think is a secondary concern to the to the to the way I described it earlier. We work for the people. We oversee the the spending of their tax dollars, and if we get the amounts of dollars that we did uh, last year, this late this summer, then I think it's proper that the legislature have a role in the overseeing of that of that uh, spending. Again, it's the legislative process. The governor's right in the middle of it as well. Uh, and uh, it, it's the check and balance system that we all uh, are familiar with. And that's and that's what we've done. Uh, it, it seems to and, and we'll see how it works. But again, this is not about. This is not a backdoor to a full-time legislature. Uh, none of us. None of us. None of us want that. Well, I, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I. But the vast majority, and and mostly speaking for myself, we do not want to have a full-time legislature. Idaho would not be well served by that at this point. You know, I, I wanted to ask about the House's respectful workplace policy. I know that. First of all, you can't comment on whether there are any active complaints against members, though we know that there are thousands of signatures and there have been more form letters submitted um, asking for an ethics hearing um, on Representative Priscilla Giddings. Um, so, so I know that you can't comment on things that aren't yet public. I do want to ask you about a press release sent by your caucus chair about writing a new respectful workplace policy um, in, in response to what happened this past session with Representative or former Representative Von Ellinger, what sort of changes do you anticipate making to that policy? Well, the respectful workplace policy is a policy that governs all of the employees in, uh, in the Capitol and their expectations for their protection, et cetera, and how, and how all of the various relationships will go. The members, both the House and the Senate, are, are governed by their rules, but there's an interface between, obviously, the, the Capitol workplace policies and those, and those rules. And so we're always looking for ways to improve that. And I, I did send out a release uh, reiterating our support uh, of the respectful workplace policy as, as presently constituted. It is a work product that came not, uh, that came from the employees inside the building, from LSO, from the lobby corps, from the other staff members, and it was received by legislative council. And, uh, and, but there was no, but there is no formal way, frankly, for the Senate or the House to adopt that uh, as our policy. It's the policy of the building, but we wanted to reiterate support for that. And so now as uh, uh, with heightened awareness of that policy, we want to have a lot of eyes 
from inside the building and outside the building take a look at that so that it best reflects the uh, the HR policies of uh, of contemporary businesses. We want to, you know, I had I had two daughters that were worked here in the capital as as pages and and uh, and then interns in other in, well nationally, you know, at the, in Congress. And I, as a father, and expected a respectful workplace policy there. I didn't, I, I didn't, of all the things I had to worry about, it was not about my daughter's safety. And uh, I think all parents, all Idaho expects our, us to have a viable page program, a viable intern program. And uh, elected officials at all levels should be and must be held to a higher standard. And we wanna make sure that our policies reflect that desire of holding everyone to a higher standard. Some members of your caucus defended former Representative Von Ellinger by saying that there weren't any adopted specific spelled out rules that said that lawmakers should not date subordinates. Is that a valid criticism and is the new policy going to spell that out explicitly? That is absolutely not a valid criticism. Uh, every every new legislator goes through an, uh, an extensive orientation process where they're made very familiar with uh, these respectful workplace policy and what is expected of each of us as elected officials. Uh, and to and to and to say that we didn't know because there wasn't a rule or we there's no rule so therefore there shouldn't be any consequence. That is a that's a bogus argument. Yeah, I, I want to ask, looking forward, um, you mentioned that this year's income tax bill was the largest tax relief bill that Idaho has ever seen. After passing cuts to, to income taxes, is there enough money in the budget looking forward to increase the grocery tax credit or uh, repeal mm -hmm. the grocery tax altogether like uh, members of your caucus, some members have said that they want? Well, uh, that's that's a complicated subject, and we could go into it if you if you have time. But here's the bottom line: is that uh, uh, if we remove the sales tax off of food, the retailers are used to you paying the sales tax, and they set their prices of milk, for example, based on what the market will bear. The fact that the state removes the sales tax off of that. Uh, does not necessarily mean that the grocery retailers are going to reciprocate by lowering, uh, by by passing those savings on to you. You have proven through the years that you'll pay, uh, you know, let's say milk is $3 a gallon. You've been paying 18 cents on top of that as a sales tax. You, you've proven year after year that you'll pay $3.18 a gallon for milk. If, if the sales tax is removed, are they gonna give that 18 cents back to you or are they gonna take part of that and put it in their pocket? That's one. Uh, and like I say, we can talk about all of the other good reasons for why uh, everyone should uh, file income taxes. We call it a grocery tax credit, but it's really an in, a refundable income tax credit. And so you have to file your income taxes to qualify. That keeps everyone filing. Uh, there, are, there are many people uh, that are in the state and, and that pass through that, that pay no uh, state income tax, yet they pay sales tax on food. And, uh, and they use Idaho services. And so, uh, you know, those are two quick things that come to mind. And I, you know, we'll look at it down the road again. 
but uh, if we're going to give if we're going to give tax relief, we should be relief that goes directly to Idahoans and not to out-of-staters or to people that don't file income tax. All right, that's all the time we have. House Speaker Scott Bedke, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Good to see you. Thanks for watching. For updates throughout the week, make sure you're following Idaho Reports on social media. Next Friday, Governor Brad Little is scheduled to join us. We'll see you then. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.